Hey there, Chip Close here, founder of Restaurant Strategy, host here of the Restaurant Strategy podcast, two episodes every single week. You are right in the middle of a 10-episode arc that I've dubbed Rethinking Restaurants. I'm challenging myself and all of you to rethink what a restaurant can be, how a restaurant operates, what we expect from a restaurant, from both the merchant side and a consumer side. Uh, Restaurants evolve. Restaurants have been around for not hundreds of years, but thousands of years. And the model that we have, the service model, specifically was basically just invented 250 years ago. So in today's episode, I want to uh, take us back a little bit of a history lesson so we have a better sense of scope, some context to understand where we've been and where we are. From there, we're going to talk about where I think we might be going. All of that on today's episode of Restaurant Strategy. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close. I am your host. This is a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you do just that, to build a more profitable and sustainable business. I also work directly with owners and operators from all over the world in my P3 Mastermind program. This is a group coaching program that meets two hours every single week. If you are really good at making a bunch of hungry people happy, you generate a lot of revenue but struggle to generate a consistent, predictable return every single month, then I want to talk with you. Set up a call. You do that by visiting our website, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. You'll uh, jump on a call with me or someone from my team. We'll learn about you and your restaurant. We'll, uh, we'll give you a chance to ask some questions about the program to see if you're a good fit for the program. And if you are, if everything clicks, we'll talk about what the next steps are. There's absolutely no pressure. That call is absolutely free, but we get to chat with owners and operators, independent operators from all over the world every single week. It's the best part of my job. Uh, It's the best part of my team's job. Again, you do that by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. And yes, that link is in the show notes. Now, thousands of restaurants across the country use KickFin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to what has become a really big problem. Because let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, can be kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes your managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which can sometimes lead to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft. And there's usually never enough cash on hand to pay out those tips, so managers are constantly having to make bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet KickFin. KickFin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time, cashless tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with KickFin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze, and it protects your business from mistakes and theft. And guess what? Employees love it, so it becomes a really powerful recruiting tool. 
Best of all, restaurants can have KickFin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds, no hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars all across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com slash demo, and yes, that link is in the show notes. Now, today, right, we're, we are in the third episode of a 10-episode arc where I'm urging you to rethink restaurants. We talked about the changing business model, right? The business model we have is deteriorating. Uh, profitability is getting squeezed, and, and I think and I think we have to um, I think we have to acknowledge that and move on and find a better way because if we're not making money doing it, there's no point to do it. So the first episode, episode 311, we talked about uh, how we rethink the business model. Last episode, uh, episode 312, we rethought pricing, right? And we talked a lot about dynamic pricing and some of the some of the tools that are coming down uh, coming down the pike. Today, I want us to rethink the service model. And yeah, the service model is very closely connected with the business model, but there's something um, something really, uh, really key we have to talk about here. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna split this conversation into two pieces. The beginning part of the conversation is gonna be all about where we have been and where we are now. So then the second part of the conversation, we can talk about what's starting to happen and where I think we're going, because I think things are changing much faster than a lot of people realize. And I'll tell you what I mean by that and what makes me so confident about that. Let's talk about the service model. The service model that we currently have in restaurants um, is sort of one of two things, right? Either we've got quick service, fast casual, right? Meaning you go up, you order at the counter and you take your food to a table or the food is brought to your table or you order at the counter and you take your food with you. Drive through, counter service, all of that is sort of the same thing. Or we have full service. Now, there's full service casual, there's full service fine dining, but full service, meaning we come in, we sit down, and somebody waits on us. Right now, as it exists in the world, those are pretty much the two options, right? And one's casual, one's more formal. Even though full service casual is not formal, there is more, uh, there are steps of service, there's more structure to it than come in, order your sandwich, and take it out to go. Two main ways. This, though is not the only way it's ever been. When you look back over the course of history, that model was basically invented in Paris in the 1760s, 17, something like that, right? 1760s, 1770s, 1780s. It was in the wake of the French Revolution as all of the aristocratic, uh, uh, the, all the aristocrats, the aristocratic um, nobles, right? all started losing their heads to the guillotine. What happened is that they had all this money and huge staffs of butlers and chefs and cooks, and without a boss, they had no one to pay them. So what they did is they left and they went trying to, to seek work, but there was nobody else who could pay them what they were used to being paid. So a lot of them started to uh, do what they knew to do, right, which is to cook great food, but for the masses. And for the most part, at least in Western Europe, that was rare. Uh, and so that's the, the restaurants that we now know um, were sort of invented in Paris in the 1700s. But if you go way back into ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient China, restaurants existed. So if we look, and, and I'm going to quote two books here that uh, if you haven't read are absolutely worth reading. The first one is A Global History of Dining Out, uh, Dining Out of Restaurants. 
This is Katie Rawson and Elliot Shore. It's a great book that takes you all the way back uh, to the times of antiquity. And then The Invention of the Restaurant, which is Paris and the Modern Gastronomic Culture. It's by Re uh, Rebecca Spang. Those two books talk about these two things, right? One of them is the invention of the restaurant as we know it, Paris, 1700s. And the other one is really talking about all the different styles of dining that go all the way back thousands of years. When you look back at ancient Rome, and if any of you guys have been to Rome and walked the ruins, especially if you walk the ruins at Pompeii, you can see restaurants. You can visit restaurants, and they look remarkably similar, remarkably similar to the fast, casual, counter-service restaurants that we have now. That thing we didn't invent, that thing has been around for thousands of years, right? Where you go up and there was different stews or soups or, or you know, skewers of things where they had coals or wood, uh, you know, burning underneath. And then like terracotta or clay pots that were nestled in little holes in the counter and to keep them warm, right? It's basically like the modern buffet with little sternos keeping the trays warm. That's what they knew to do, and they created food, stews, soups, skewers that could sort of like be kept, um, be, be kept at temperature for a long period of time, right? It was one of the earliest restaurants, literally thousands of years ago. When I was in Pompeii, I visited the Amalfi Coast uh, two years ago, and we took pictures of it. It was awesome being a restaurant person and being there and seeing a restaurant that was over 2,000 years old was awesome, right? So that was one kind of restaurant in ancient Rome. Also in ancient Rome, they basically had a pub. Now back then, both of these kind of restaurants really were meant to serve the lower class or the middle class because what happened, if you were upper middle class or nobles, you had the money to have cooks and chefs and people prepare your food and it was, um, it was considered sought after to be able to host people in your home. So there really weren't, at least in that time, fancy restaurants like we think of fancy restaurants. People just didn't do it. They had people in their fancy dining rooms, in their fancy homes, because they had great chefs to do it. And now you can see how that connects directly from ancient Rome to sort of the aristocratic period of, let's say, the rest of Western Europe, right? That holds over where people have, you know, extravagant meals in their home. P.S., that same thing all the way goes back to like, you know, ancient Mesopotamia where it was sought after though people had these huge feasts in their homes and people were invited in. And the idea of dining out though, right, has changed over, uh, over millennia. When we talk about this, right, in ancient Rome, two different kinds of restaurants is really meant to serve low class or lower middle class, people who couldn't afford to have a full staff in their home. So dining out was reserved for that. And because these people were often laborers, they, they led long, busy uh, lives. They, they toiled. And so the idea of coming home and making food was often uh, not a reality or being able to get all the way home from their job right, to go all the way home, eat food for lunch and go all the way back to work was unrealistic. And, you know, it was difficult to sort of bring your lunch and put it in the uh, in the company fridge in the break room. That didn't really exist. That's why these places popped up and were successful. Now, if you go and look at ancient Greece, similar kind of thing, ancient China, similar kind of thing. Interestingly, this pub in ancient Rome, because again, you see it uh, pop up in ancient Greece as well. A lot of people talk about Greco-Roman history. Those pubs were really meant to serve wine, and the food they served was meant to go with the wine. It was a stew. It was a porridge. It was uh, little bites. It was breads. It was olives, things like that. Here's the really interesting thing. Oftentimes, you didn't choose from a menu. They just told you what they had that day, 
And on some occasions, you didn't even pay for the food. The food was provided to keep you drinking, right? Sounds an awful lot like bar snacks, right? Bar nuts, bar popcorn, things like that. They fed you the food so you didn't get too drunk and so that you had stuff in your stomach, right? And you had that, that salty food, the olives, right? The, the stews, it was salty, which kept you drinking, right? The idea was that they wanted to keep you there drinking, consuming wine, let's call it. And so they fed you food, right? So you actually didn't order the food and in some occasions didn't even pay for the food. All of that is outlined in this book, Dining Out, right? Worth looking at. You can also Google it. You can do your own research. Ancient China had almost like um, almost like a food court feel, right? There's a lot of things back to like 800, 1200, 1400, where basically you showed up, you sat down, a waiter asked you what you wanted, and then went up to the counter and ordered it with the various cooks that were behind there. So whatever you wanted, or they told you basically what they could do or the, some of the parameters, you ordered it from the table and then they went and got it. Again, that's that sort of gets closer to what this is, but there wasn't a menu per se right? There wasn't a menu like we know it. Again, that was sort of invented in Paris. A lot of it was just, here's what we have and it's relatively limited, or tell us what you have in mind, we'll go do our best with it. And I'm, I'm guessing, and, and sort of what's outlined here, is that the menu was much narrower in these ancient, uh, in these ancient cultures because they couldn't fly food in from all over the place. So you had what they could bring from the surrounding couple of miles. So if you were in the plains, that said one thing. If you were by the shore, that, uh, that was another thing. If you were up in the mountains, that was another thing. And so you were really penned in by the limitations of geography. Of course, when you think about it, it makes sense, but we lose sight of that. So this idea that we're returning to local and all of that, right, in, in modern times, that, that's, that, that's not a, that's a cutesy thing. Um, but it's often, uh, back then, uh, was the only way that they knew. There was only local. There was no way you could uh, go fish for something 100 miles away and get it back to the town up in the mountains in time for it still to be fresh. It was very challenging. It was very challenging to do that. So, And it's not like people uh, traveled or went on vacation in the same way that we do now. Things were different. I don't need to tell you. Things were different the way back when. All of that to say, and, and I'll, uh, the last thing I'll say is when you get into like, uh, so let's say Western Europe, let's say United Kingdom, when you get into uh, Middle Ages or out of the Middle Ages towards the Renaissance, oftentimes, right now, people were traveling from town to town, but it took a long time often to get where you were going. And so when you talk about this idea of room and board, oftentimes if you had to stop at an inn and stay overnight, they provided dinner that night and breakfast the next morning, right? Because you had been traveling a long time. Oftentimes you weren't able to eat. And so they knew you needed to eat when you got there. And it wasn't like you could just go out to different restaurants. They didn't really exist. This is how restaurants existed back then for a great many of people specifically when they were traveling. You were provided room and board. You provided room and some sort of food, but there was no menu. You didn't sit down in the room and look over a thing. It was just, this is what we're serving today. We're serving this kind of stew and this kind of bread. And they just put the stew in front of you and gave you a, a plate of bread or a bowl of bread. It was, it was incorporated, included in the cost of the room. You just got what they were serving for dinner that night and what they were serving for breakfast the next morning. Again, these are all different business models and all different service models. 
But I want to use that to just highlight the fact that, again, you, you can Google all this. You can go read books about all this. It's fascinating. I'm interested in what's happening now and what will happen next. I want to have that conversation in a second after a word from another one of our sponsors. Now, Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges, and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution yet. It's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with the previous ingredients that you've already heard me mention on this podcast, right? Websites designed with SEO in mind, marketing tools to keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, the patented interactive menu technology. This new recipe brings automated phone answering, third-party online order aggregation, and waitlisting and more to the table. PopMenu's phone answering, for example, it's a technology that has your ringing phones covered. It uses artificial intelligence, right? So AI. Now, the simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can be handled without pulling a staff member from your in-person hospitality. So no more missed reservations, no more asking for your hours or uh, missed revenue. And that's just the beginning. You have a passion for food. PopMenu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you get to lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month by visiting popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. And yes, you'll find that link in the show notes. Now, the restaurant as we know it was invented a couple hundred years ago, but restaurants have been around for thousands of years in various forms. It's foolish to think that we have to hold on to the current service model we have, especially as the world changes, as the ground shifts beneath our feet. Yes, we joke a lot about these razor-thin profit margins. I'm tired of joking about it. What we do is too hard to not make money doing it. So we have to be willing to acknowledge what's working and what's not working. So let's talk about the service model. Let's talk about the service model we have now. Again, we've got basically our fast, casual, quick service model and our full service model. The fast casual quick service model has been around in some form for thousands of years. Congratulations, we have hardly changed it. The full service model though, while there are uh, examples uh, you know, in, in various cultures, for the most part it was invented a couple hundred years ago, at least the way we know, which is where we sit down at a table, we're given a list of all the stuff that the, that the restaurant is prepared to make for us tonight. We pick something from that list, they make that something, they bring it to us, we eat it, and we pay for what we consume, right? That is the modern restaurant that was invented in the 1700s in Paris. Here's something very important to understand. That restaurant was put together based on the limitations they had at the time. It was perpetuated based on the limitations we continued to have. And now with technology, and again, we're going to cover technology in a couple of episodes. We're going, to, we're going to really dive in and dedicate our time to that. But now technology is providing us solutions to some of our biggest problems. So what are those problems? The thing that I've heard on and on and on, not only since the pandemic, really before, and I'll remind you how hard it was to find really good help in 2019. But after the pandemic, it became even harder. I understand that. 
But what I'm tired of hearing is this thing, right? Oh, I can't find good waiters. I can't find good waiters. Because for me, I go, who cares? Why do you even need waiters? What they're saying is I can't find enough good waiters. Most restaurant owners that I know have waiters and they have really good waiters. They don't have enough really good waiters. And that's really important. We have to stop there. We have to pause and acknowledge that. We just can't find enough people to run the restaurant the way that we've been running it. Meanwhile, at the same time, and, and here's, the, here's the, the thing that drives me crazy, is I'm looking at everybody's P&Ls and their labors at 32, 38, 45, on and on and on. You cannot run a profitable restaurant with a labor, with a labor percentage above 30 or 32 percent. You just can't. Or you got to make it up somehow, right? We had Kevin Bame on the show a while back, and he was saying his restaurants really require 38 percent labor. But he knows that prime cost, right? Prime is cogs plus labor. He knows that prime can't really go above 60 percent if he still wants to make money. So if labor's at 38, he knows his cost of goods sold needs to be at 22. That's really crucial. But, but for the most part, even that's really hard. And I don't have to tell you guys this. With the, with, the, with the cost of goods going through the roof over the last couple of years, certainly in the last 18 months, even getting your cogs below 30% is really hard. So for me, that's why I talk a lot about the 30-30-20 rule. 30% cogs, 30% labor, 20% for everything else. If you can get that, you've got a restaurant that will generate 20% profit every single month. That's sort of the, the model, the, the template that I use with all of the members uh, of the mastermind that I work with, all the clients I work with. 30, 30, 20. When we look at, you know, I can't find enough staff, I can't find enough good staff, and then meanwhile I'm looking at their P&L and it says their labor percentage is at 40%. Well, for me, I look at that and I say, you're already over budget with your labor. You need to get your labor to 30. So you're 10 points too heavy. So I can't find enough people. And also I can't afford to pay my people. Like it doesn't make sense. You can't have both problems at the same time where I'm over budget on labor and I can't find enough people. And here's where technology comes in. Here's where the world is an amazing place right now because we have technolo uh, technology solutions that can allow us to do our job more effectively and more efficiently. On the fast, casual, quick service side, there's no reason why we need cashiers anymore. We now use kiosks in all of the key places in our world. And I know people say, oh, kiosk, kiosk, it's gonna take the human touch out of it, that's BS. We learned this case study through McDonald's. So McDonald's introduced the kiosks and hold your criticism. I don't care how you feel about the McDonald's kiosks. The McDonald's kiosk get a better net promoter score and generate more revenue per order than any period before. They are busier and they are more profitable than ever before. So it doesn't matter how you feel about kiosks, the kiosk data is overwhelmingly clear. It's why Wendy's and Taco Bell and Arby's and on and on and on, it's why everybody's rolling them out. I was faced with kiosks 30-some years ago at Wawa. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. If anybody is in the Philadelphia area, you know Wawa. It's a convenience store usually connected to a gas station. And they usually went to the counter and you ordered your hoagie. And they made your hoagie and they gave it to you. 
And then at a certain point, again, about 30 years ago, they rolled out these kiosks, which was a little computer where you could type in exactly what you wanted. And what they found is that they could run with less people in the back. They got more orders right, which was better for the guest sentiment. Guests were happier because they got what they wanted. And they ended up generating more revenue because there were little add-ons. Do you want to add extra cheese? Do you want to add extra meat for 75 cents, for 50 cents? So it made uh, less waste, generated more revenue, and it made the customers happy. I don't understand why taking that personal connection out is a bad thing. Now we can let our people really do what they do well, which is make the good sandwiches and, and you know help people answer questions when they have them. But if they're busy taking orders all the time, people barking orders across the counter, well, they got no time to be personal. They have no time to answer questions. We use kiosks in so many areas of our life. Now when we pump gas, now when we go to the bank, now when we go to the airport, a lot of times now when we check in at hotels, even that's easy to do. In so many areas of our life, we use kiosks. When was the last time you actually paid a parking attendant when you were leaving the parking garage? You usually don't. You either pay mobile on your phone or you use one of the kiosks. We don't need people there collecting money. There's, a, there's another system that will do exactly what we need it to do. So to introduce kiosks in the restaurants, I don't know, right? We could talk about hospitality. I don't know at a fast casual restaurant if we need hospitality. I don't know if going up to the cash register at McDonald's could be called hospitality. It's transactional. It's cold. Oftentimes the people are busy, overworked, often rude or sassy. So I can use a big, bright, beautiful screen. It's sort of gamified. It's fun to use. My son loves to use it. I don't know. If you ask me, been on the planet for 43 years. I've been going to McDonald's probably for 43 years of my life. I think these kiosks are better. The experience at Taco Bell using the kiosks is better. It's basically the same thing. You go up to the counter, you tell them what you want, they get it, they give it to you. Now, we just use this kiosk. We can get more orders in. We can process them more efficiently. And again, the data shows overwhelmingly it increases the check average. So when we talk about the service model, how we serve people in a quick service or fast casual uh, establishment, I don't understand why we're still arguing about uh, kiosks. The data is overwhelmingly clear. Now, we can make the kiosks better, more intuitive. We can Im improve the, um, the user experience, make it more frictionless, make it easy and fun to use. Certainly the McDonald's kiosks are a great example of that. They're sturdy, they're big, they're bright, they're easy to use. They're easy to tap. They're fun. So yeah, we can talk about making them better. And we should. We should challenge our technology partners to make their products better, to help us serve our people better because it will reflect on us ultimately. So in the quick service fast casual, I promise you in ancient Rome 2,000 some years ago, if they had had a kiosk, they would have done it because instead of having three people behind the counter or four people behind the counter, they would probably only need one. That's a really important thing to note. And there's more about that McDonald's case study. Maybe I'll get into that at some point. I know I've talked about it in the past in the show. So if any of you guys haven't heard it before, go scroll back, find those episodes. You will find it. But then when we go to the fast casual, or I'm sorry, to the full service model, a full service restaurant, we have to look at companies like Bartaco. So I had Anthony Valletta on the show. Anthony is the president of Bartaco. Bartaco is a small but growing restaurant group 
um, of restaurants, mainly here in the Northeast around um, uh, New York, Connecticut, uh, but now spreading across to the Midwest. And what they did a couple of years ago uh, is they ended up changing their entire service model. So they don't do waiters anymore. You basically order on a tablet, on your phone, or if you really don't want to do that, you can do it almost like sushi style, like old school, where they give you a piece of paper and you cross off, you check off exactly what you want. And in rare occasions, if you really don't want to do any of that, they'll come in and actually take your order like a waiter would take an order. But for the most part, they said, hey, we, we don't have to do it. I think I don't think our people need us for this. And what they were able to do, and Anthony Valletta on that interview when I had him on the show, he said, we found a way to cut five points from our labor. Five points. That's huge. Five points from our labor and add five points to top-line revenue simply because they're learning the same thing that McDonald's learned and all these other big companies who are using kiosks learn. When you use these screens, when you let people order on their own, they will order more than they typically would. And you can do that. You can put pieces into the user experience just like Amazon does. People who bought this also like this. Would you also, you bought this remote control car, you might also need batteries. Oh, yeah. You ordered this, you might also like this as a side or this as a glass of wine, or we might recommend adding the grilled shrimp to the top of that, et cetera, et cetera. That can all be programmed into your system, into the ordering system. So what Bartaco did is they have now a new style of service. It's a full service restaurant where they've got, let's say two or three, forget what they call them, but they're like ambassadors. They're actually managers. Uh, managers. They're salaried managers that all have a large section on the floor. So instead of having, having six, seven, eight waiters, they now have three ambassadors. And then they've got a team of runners and bussers who bring the food, clear the dishes, reset the tables and all that. And what happens is that now that the waiters or the ambassadors don't have to take the order, we've removed that task from them. Well, now they've got more time to actually be more hospitable. They can greet more tables. They can spend more time at the table, guiding them through the menu, answering questions about the menu being there to anticipate their next need, to get them more drinks, to get them refills, to actually make sure they have a better time because they're not at the stuck at a table taking an eight tops order. And they're not stuck over in the corner tapping that order into the POS terminal. They basically said, if we remove those tasks from their job, I think we actually need less of them and I think the ones that we have are going to be able to do a better, more hospitable job. So for everybody that tells me, no, 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 we always need waiters. Why would you lose waiters? Waiters make the restaurant. They don't. They don't. I was a waiter for a long time. I was very grateful for the opportunities it afforded me. Um, I love a good waiter, but I, we have to be absolutely honest. I'd say I have a great waiter. Three out of 10 meals, I'm out. A lot of times I have gruff or sort of aloof waiters. I've got people who aren't very good. I've got people who are sassy. I've got people that, I, that aren't anticipating my needs. Do I need those people? No, I don't. Two biggest complaints across uh, diners uh, for <laughs> not the last year, not the last 10 years, but for the last 50 years has been, I couldn't find my waiter and it took too long. It took too long and I couldn't find my waiter to complain. On and on. I couldn't find my waiter and it took too long. So now when we take some of these tasks out of the waiter's job and we keep them on the floor in their station, it's always easy to find your waiter. And if you think it's taking too long, you just look at your uh, computer screen. You just look at your tablet. You look at your phone and you can, it'll tell you exactly 
how long it is. And if anybody's ever ordered from Domino's, let's see, let's say, you can see where they are in the process. We can do that too. Because we all use the KDS screens, we can tell people, oh, we've started cooking your food. Oh, we're plating your food. Oh, your food's being brought. It'll be to you in the next couple of minutes. People can follow along with real time, right? I'm reminded of the, uh, of the case study of the, um, the, uh, the, the tube over in London, right? They found that people were really annoyed at how long they had to wait. And so they couldn't afford to run more cars, more trains, because it was going to be too expensive. What they did instead, for a fraction of the cost, they put in these screens, these clocks that tell you how long until the next train. And what they did is that they realized by managing the rider's expectations by saying it's six minutes until the next train, which by the way, I was in London last year and it's never six minutes. The most I waited for a train I think was three or four. They run all the time. It's an incredible system. I lived in New York for a very long time and I thought that system was amazing. It's not. It's nowhere close to the European systems. Uh, the metro in Paris, the tube in London, uh, the, the way that system, the underground and the overground work, I mean, it's just incredible. But what they found is that instead of having to run more cars, which would have been very expensive to not only build more cars and to, to man all those cars, all they had to do is tell people about how long it was going to be. So I actually don't think you need to get the people their food any faster, but keeping them in the loop about how long it's going to be, I think would do quite a bit. And man, we got the digital tools to be able to do that. I think there will come a future where we don't need waiters, at least in the way that we think of them now. I think we could probably run with half the staff or a third of the staff if we, uh, if we integrate some of these digital touch points to do some of the very clunky um, transactional pieces that we need them to do. And again, here's the other thing I hear all the time. Well, people don't want to do that. They go to restaurants to be taken care of. And that might be true. I think people go to certain restaurants or certain kinds of restaurants to be taken care of. But I don't go to the diner to have sassy Sally sling food and, and, and be gruff with me. I can go to the diner and order my omelet, my pancakes, my French toast, whatever it is, just fine on my own. In fact, most people do once or twice a week. They use apps like DoorDash or Uber Eats to order their food to go, to be delivered at their home. It's the same thing we're asking them to do in certain restaurants. And I'm sorry, at a McDonald's, at an Olive Garden, at a, I don't know, at a diner, I don't need someone to explain, to, to be there to take my order. It'd be nice to have someone there to answer my questions or to guide me through the menu if I, if I think that'll help. But I've never been to Applebee's and had a waiter make my night better by explaining by explaining anything special about the menu. I get what it is. There are burgers, there are ribs, there are steaks, there's fish, there's a salad. Like, I get it. I don't need somebody there. So if we assume that I don't need somebody there all the time to be on my table, but I need just somebody around in case I need somebody, I think we can do this better. And I think we can do it uh, cheaper, right? Again, the bar taco model. If you haven't done that, I would Google it and read uh, any of the hundred articles that have written about it. Uh, go listen to any of the hundred interviews that Anthony Valletta has done. You can certainly do the interview that, uh, check out the interview he did with me on this show, uh, but you don't have to. You can listen to any of the interviews he's given because he is very thoughtful and articulate about what they've done. I think we can challenge ourselves to think of a new service model. And I think technology uh, is being injected in can really help us do this. 
I challenge all of you, I challenge all of you to not accept things the way they are and the way they have been because we will continue to get squeezed. Minimum wage keeps going up. People will demand more. We need all of these people to make our restaurant run. And I don't think it has to be. We have to challenge ourselves to say, huh, well, what? how else could I do this? And again, if you go back to the bare minimum, the bare minimum, the, the, the premise of marketing is that you look out to your market and you say, what do people need? What do people need that I am uniquely qualified to provide them with? And I think what you'll find is they don't necessarily need a restaurant like they have. We've got plenty of restaurants. So I would challenge you to challenge yourself to answer that question. And I think when you do, you say, what do people need? What do people need that I'm uniquely qualified to provide them with? And how can I do it really profitably so I can provide for me and my family? That's the last piece of that that you have to be willing to do. The answers are out there and we have to stop being so precious. We have to stop being so romantic about keeping restaurants the way they are because they've changed a hundred times over the course of the last 4,000 years. Restaurants have changed and I'm overwhelmed by the fact that people decide to go out to eat, that they want us to prepare food for them, that they want us to serve them. But something's gotta give. Because right now, the only one giving is us, as restaurant owners, we're getting squeezed. Landlords get paid, the vendors get paid, our staff gets paid, right? We, we make payroll every single week. And restaurant owners are continue to get squeezed. And I think you will continue to get squeezed until you challenge yourself to rethink the service model. If you run a quick service or a fast casual and you are not rethinking how to do that more efficiently, more cost effectively, you will get squeezed out of business. If you run a full service restaurant and you are not rethinking that service model, I promise you, you will get squeezed. Here's the last word on it. I challenge all of the independent operators listening to this to start thinking about this in a real way because what will happen, what is happening, is that the big restaurant groups, the big chains, are already working on this. And they will start integrating this. And what will happen is that when Applebee's or Chili's or Outback introduces this and they have a new service model where they allow, where they let their guests just order from the table without engaging with a waiter in that way, people will come to like it for a variety of reasons, many of which we've outlined here. When they want another drink, they can just go order another drink. When they want a side of mayo, they don't have to find someone. They just order a side of mayo. It will be brought out to them. When they want a side dish, when they are ready for dessert, they can order it. When they want to-go boxes because they want to package stuff up, they just say to-go, send, and they get it in the kitchen. The expo or the runner will bring out to-go containers. There is a future where that is better. And when the chains do it, consumers will put pressure on all of the independents to do it because they will get used to it and they will come to like it. And if you haven't thought about this, if you're not working on this, you'll be forced to pivot and do it really quickly and it will kill a lot of restaurants out there. If you are not thinking about this seriously, I promise you will get left behind. Three years from now, we're gonna be amazed at the fact that we even had to have this conversation, I promise you. Three years from now, this is coming. Consumer sentiment is changing 
when it comes to this. Now, for certain restaurants, fine dining, no. But you're going to start paying for that. You're going to pay more for that than you already do. And we're going to go out to fine dining restaurants specifically to be taken care of. But for a whole lot of other restaurants, I'll say 60 to 70% of the rest of full-service restaurants, they will go this way. It's inevitable. You see what's happening on the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington. You see what's happening in places like New York City. It is inevitable. Get out ahead of it. It's a giant wave that's cresting. You can be on the front of the wave, surfing, riding that wave all the way in, or you can stay back and be crushed by that wave. The choice is yours. So again, this is the third uh, of a of a ten episode, uh, third installment of a ten episode arc, uh, all dubbed "Rethinking Restaurants." I'm trying to challenge you to rethink how we do what we do. We don't have to do the same old thing, and I and you guys deserve more. I want us to have better better profit margins. I want us to be able to have really great living uh, and provide a legacy for the uh, for our families, right? To provide them some sort of stability. Again, uh, as I always say, I appreciate you guys being here and uh, taking the time to listen. Uh, if there's one thing you can do for me today, it's go leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That, more than anything else, helps us move the needle. It helps us grow this community. Simply tell people what sort of value you get out of this show. If you get anything from it, just go let other people know why you listen and why you love it. That, more than anything else, um, would really help me. I appreciate you guys being here. I know there's a lot of great podcasts you can listen to. Thank you very much, and I will see you next time.